Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Craig Kelberg. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Nights. who have um, ears triggers triggers <laughs> <laughs> who have the ability to hear <laughs> which theoretically would be all of our listeners listeners yeah i suppose it's possible that we have an audience member out there who gets transcripts of the show done and reads them it seems unlikely it seems like a lot of work yeah um but possible Getting transcripts of the episodes is actually something that I've been thinking about trying to do. Um, but the least work intensive way to do it is expensive. Right. Yeah. Like there hire, are systems. Hiring someone else to do it. Well, there there are systems that you can get that do the bulk of the work for you and are actually really good. Like the, the, the computer listens to your episode and it types it up for you. Oh, nice. And then... And they do the bulk of the work and then you hire like a proofreader to make sure that, you know, if you and I are talking at the same time, it didn't mistake what we said for, for a, a single word. Yeah, 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 yeah. But doing it that way is kind of expensive. Uh, the cheapest way to do it is you open uh, something like Google Docs and have it do voice to text recognition and just play the episode. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I have enough issue with voice to text stuff when I'm like speaking when you're very texting. clearly and it's just two sentences yep. and it's, it's still half mistakes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so then if you end up serving as your own proofreader, that's fine. But man, that's yeah. a lot of time intensive nonsense. Yeah. You could just hire a stenographer to take notes while recording the episode. Yeah. Yeah. yeah could do that did you know that those courtroom stenographers are not using a regular keyboard i did i think i think we might have had this conversation on this podcast there's a very real chance um i'm not certain i know you and i have had that conversation we talked about how like when in in tv shows when it looks like they're just terrible at acting it's actually because they're it's really actually good at it. they're really good at yeah. it yeah because they're not because <laughs> those stenography keyboards you push like five buttons at, at a time mm-hmm. to make the words apparently there are keyboards that you can buy that have just 10 buttons but it's not um you don't push them down you you they're like joysticks you push them up down left or right and oh, depending on weird. which direction you push them that's the letter it's the letter but you can also do several at a, at the same time you can set it for essentially the stenographer keyboard mode where you do uh-huh. like these four letters and it gives you a whole word so people who are good at it it makes playing piano look simple yeah <laughs> but i imagine if you spend a good portion of your life at a computer it's probably a good like it's it's probably nice oh yeah 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 i'm sure um and worth getting better at i wouldn't want to i barely like getting better at regular typing i don't get better at regular typing no no do you have push each button texting or swipey texting i mean i i both both okay which one do you use what do you do do you swipey text both oh i don't know why i switch back and forth but there are just like sometimes i type everything out and sometimes i do the swipe thing uh, i uh used to always do the swipey thing but my phone has learned a lot of wrong words mm. and so now swipey texting doesn't work for me because every time i try to write and it thinks i'm saying abs <laughs> every time i try to write three it thinks i mean the yeah actually always becomes actuary <laughs> Like, no, that's not what I meant at all. Thank you very much. Yeah. Try again. Yeah. Maybe it's just trying to give you pointers on what, what you should be saying. Do I need to spend more time thinking about an actuary? Maybe. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> that's not a good sign at all. Or maybe it's just saying you shouldn't be correcting people so much. 
Hey, listener, how you doing? Welcome to Campfire Classics. What is your favorite autocorrect mishap? Everybody's got one. I mean, the classic is ducking. Yeah. Because cell phones don't like to swear. Except I have taught my cell phone to swear, and I was texting Heather from uh, the, the park in Iowa City where I had gone to watch the ducks. <laughs> Look at all these fucks. What? No, I'm just here to watch the fucks. Yeah. Uh, so I have a, um, before we get into what this podcast is actually about, I have a, a little fun sort of check-in thing to do uh, for our fans, for our listeners. So in response to uh, Mambo the Clown, the painting which uh, we talked about last week for the listener, but like two hours ago for us recording here, since we're recording back-to-back episodes, uh, our mom shared a memory with me about a show from her childhood. The show was called J.P. Patches, about a clown named J.P. Patches who lived in the city dump with his girlfriend, Gertrude. That's awesome. I'm also a huge fan of names that are pluralized uh, common nouns. Patches, pockets. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mittens. Here is a picture of uh, J.P. Patches and his girlfriend, Gertrude. Ooh. Yeah, okay. that's Gertrude on the left, the man with the stubble and the pink wig. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll be sharing that picture uh, later on our social media. Uh, so I've watched a couple of clips from this show after having talked to mom about it. Um, I find it intriguing and it's like this weird little predecessor to Pee Wee's Playhouse. Interesting. Yeah. So the show ran from 1958 until 1981, 24 seasons and around 12,000 episodes. Same cast, the whole, like same two guys? Same. Well, the, the guy who played uh, J.P. Patches was with it the entire time. Yeah. That was his character. Gertrude showed up like four or five seasons in and then and was there until the end. Wow. Yeah. 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 Uh, When it went off the air, it was the longest running local children's program in America. The guy who created the show actually grew up in Minnesota, got his start as a radio DJ in Minneapolis, where he got to interview a young up and coming singer named Elvis Presley and finally came up with his own clown persona jp patches and moved to seattle where he ruled children's entertainment for the entirety of the 60s and 70s with a closed fist (laughs) (laughs) the more research i've done on this the the show and this guy the more awesome i think jp patches actually was by all accounts he was a kind and humble human being who just loved like doing clowning shtick for kids um there was always a live audience in the show. Uh, anyway, mom grew up watching him and eventually ended up getting to be in the audience for a taping what? and got a picture with her and a few of her classmates with JP Patches. That's cool. Which I guess ended up making its way into the school yearbook. Like it got a full page spread in the school yearbook. Nice. Yeah. So I started looking into this thinking that it would be like a, uh, a creepy clown thing like creepy clown children's entertainer ha yeah. ha ha when mom told the story i was like that sounds a little unsettling and looked at the pictures and they're sort of old and a little creepy looking but n- no no like this show looks legit kind of awesome yeah. i'm super intrigued and um i think this might be the beginning of a new segment on the show called clown corner where i talk about clowns because you can't stop me that's true That's true. So this has been Clown Corner, a subsidiary of Campfire Classics. A JP Patches fan cast. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We're going to turn this into a... We could watch one episode of JP Patches and then release us just commenting on it or reviewing it. Oh my God. Can we start a commentary (laughs) podcast on JP Patches? Listeners, if you want that to happen, uh, email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and let us know that you want a JP Patches fan cast. Or if you just want me to stop talking about clowns, uh, go ahead and, well, go ahead and um, message me something 
weird, haunted, creepy, or maybe not that you have in your house that we can look at instead? Because your choices are I look at your haunted doll or I talk about clowns. That's where we are now. But that's not actually what we do on this podcast, is it? No. <laughs> I, I really don't know. I've actually kind of lost track. But typically what we do is uh, we take turns reading stories. We cold read stories, sight unseen, that have been plucked from the obscurity of public domain and served on a silver platter to you, the listener, complete with color commentary and way too many sex jokes. You're really doing a public service of presenting these stories that people have forgotten. Yeah, yeah. That's what, like, I feel like it's important mm-hmm. that... This is it, this is basically my community service. Right. I don't know what my crime was, but this is basically my community service. With, without you, who would have known of authors like Poe? Right. <laughs> Agatha Christie. Never heard of her until this podcast. Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> We're plucking these sad authors out of the the depths of historical obscurity and bringing them back to the forefront. And not once have they thanked, have they sent an email thanking you? No, it really seems kind of rude. I wish they would, but whatever. It's fine. That'd be a good ghost story. (laughs) (laughs) Dear listeners, I'm writing to you from 5050artsproduction at gmail.com to share this email I just received from William Shakespeare. He's pissed that I haven't read any of his sonnets on the program yet. Uh, So uh, we read these stories, but before we get into the stories, uh, we like to give you a little bit of background on either the story or the author or something of relative note. This week, Craig has a story for me to read, but before we get into it, he's going to share a few fun facts. Fun facts. This week's author is one without... A lot of information, but there's a few things. Okay. Grace McGowan Cook was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee on September 11th, 1862. Was she anywhere near the choo-choo? I assume assume she was on the choo-choo. Born on the choo-choo. Yeah, on the Chattanooga choo-choo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She came out saying, pardon me, boys. Is this the Chattanooga choo-choo? And that's how the song was born. What song? Uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. (laughs) She and her older sister. She and her older sister, Alice McGowan, were both authors, usually worked collaboratively. uh, And the pair published about 30 novels, 100 short stories and a handful of poetry. Okay. The father was a well-known captain during the Civil War and became the editor of the Chattanooga Times. And saw to the girls' education, tutoring them at home where he saw holes in their public education. Oh, he was one of those. <laughs> Whatever, he wanted his girls to get an education. That's yeah, pretty cool. That's great for 1860. <laughs> yeah. Um, for just post-Civil War, by yeah. the sounds of it, yeah. Uh, the sisters and their mother moved to Carmel, California in 1908, where they joined an artist hippie commune. Ooh. Uh, they were apparently not prone to the more lewd behavior there, though, since they were part of a group known as the Eminently Respectables, which sounds like a really boring follow-up to the Expendables. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, MGM, if you're looking for some sequel ideas, <laughs> the Expendables, the Expendables 2, the Eminently Respectables. The Eminently Respectables. <laughs> Starring Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, Emma Thompson. Um, it'd be great. All right. Uh, Cook's themes included the struggles of Appalachian women, women working in the mills at the turn of the 20th century, covered genres like westerns, mysteries, historical novels, and social novels. It's a social novel. Um, Pride and Prejudice? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Her most popular solo novels were The Power and the Glory in 1910 and Girls of Silver Spur Ranch in 1913. They were written during the seven years when the sisters were not collaborating, 1910 to 1917. Oh, they had a fight. They had a really long fight, apparently. Or, you know, one of them was 
raising a kid. The, their sister was maybe raising a kid. I don't know. I like the idea of it being a seven-year fight, and yeah. then they started collaborating again. Uh, eventually, they started working together again. Uh, but once the Great Depression hit, their popularity uh, dropped. Drooped. Uh, tanked, went down, was less than ideal. Went the way of the Titanic. And the country. <laughs> in 1935, the sisters moved in with wait, Grace... Wait, 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 wait. Other things that dropped, tanked, went down. The Hindenburg. I'm drawing a blank. Sherlock Holmes at the Waterfall. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. There's a literary reference. By a no-name author, Sir Arthur... Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle. Oh, oh, did he write the Conan books? No, the Conan books were about him. Oh, cool. Yeah, he lived a wild life. I didn't realize that he was such a a prodigious (laughs) rapist. (laughs) I think if you do another Sir Arthur Conan Doyle book, you should just, for the fun facts, read a biography of Conan. Born in Samaria on the side of a mountain, <laughs> uh, raised by grizzly bears. <laughs> All right. In 1935, the sisters moved in with Grace's daughter, Catherine. Grace died in 1944, her sister three years later. Uh, today, you will be reading a, sh- a short story credited to Grace alone, though certainly it's possible Alice helped. The story is titled, A Call. Bring, bring. Hello. Let's start this fire. Okay. I'm sorry, there's no one by that name here. (laughs) A call. A call! (laughs) God damn it. A call by Grace McGowan Cook. A boy in an unnaturally clean country laundered collar walked down a long white road. Ooh. A white road. A white road. Why is he wearing an unnaturally clean collar and apparently nothing else? <laughs> huh. That, that is concerning. <laughs> or is the rest of him just sort of naturally dirty and it's just the collar that is unnaturally clean? I I really like the idea that he's just wearing a collar. That's great. Yeah, yeah he's a Chippendales dancer. Yeah. Or a sub. Oh, that kind of collar. Yeah. I was thinking shirt collar, but it could also be like a dog collar. Yeah, I was thinking dog collar and ball gag. It doesn't say that, but... Uh, yeah, you know. I guess because it said laundered collar, I was thinking shirt collar. But I suppose you can, you you can, can launder, launder a dog, a dog collar, collar yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. He scuffed the dust up wantonly, for he wished to veil the all-too-brilliant polish of his cowhide shoes. All right, so he's also wearing shoes. Got it. This is good. Also, the memory of the whiteness and slipperiness of his collar oppressed him. He was fain to look like one accustomed to social diversions, a man hurried from hall to hall of pleasure without time between to change collar or polish boot. Definitely a dog collar. Definitely a dog collar. (laughs) Halls of pleasure, changing your collar, polishing boots. Yeah. Yeah. He stooped and rubbed a crumb of earth in his overfresh neck linen. This did not long sustain his drooping spirit. Not the only thing that was drooping. What? He was mentally adrift upon the hints and helps to young men in business and social relations, which I'm assuming is the title of a book or possibly a magazine article. Yeah. Given the capital letters that were thrown in there. He was mentally adrift upon the hints and helps to young men in business and social relations which had suggested to him his present enterprise, when the appearance of a second youth, taller and broader than himself, with a shock of light curling hair and a crop of freckles that advertised a rich soil, threw him a lifeline. All right. Would this be the Dom? Probably. So this book told him he should go have a, have a bunch of sex. Cool. Great. 
put his thumbs to his lips and whistled in a peculiar ear-splitting way. His thumbs? Not his thumb and pointer finger, his thumbs. It says his thumbs. That would be a peculiar way to whistle. I've never seen that. The two boys had sat on the same bench at Sunday school not three hours before, yet what a change had come over the world for one of them since then. If these two boys were sitting on a bench in Sunday school, we are no longer going to talk about them as Dom and Sub. That is a great <laughs> point. Yeah. He is fully clothed. <laughs> Hello. Where are you going, Abe? Asked the newcomer gruffly. Let's try that again. Hello. Where are you going, Abe? Asked the newcomer gruffly. Call in, replied the boy and the caller laconically, but with carefully averted eyes. On the girls, inquired the other, awestruck. Awestruck? It's just, I don't know. He's impressed that he's going to talk to girls. But he didn't say he was going to talk to girls. Question. It was a question. Yeah. Hey. Inquired, awestruck. Fair. Yeah. So I suppose I could give it another reading. <gasps> On the girls? inquired the other, awestruck. In Mount Pisgah, you saw the girls' home from night church, socials, or parties. You could hang over the gate, and you might walk with the girl in the cemetery of a Sunday afternoon, but to ring the front doorbell and ask for Miss Hart's desire, one must have been in long trousers at least three years. And the two boys confronted in the dusty road had worn these dignifying garments barely six months. Right, because there was, there was like an age where you started wearing pants. Pants instead of shorts. Yeah. yeah. So these, these kids is too young to be calling on girls. Also, in Mount Pisgah, this is really close to where we are. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Cool. Girls, said Abner loftily. I don't know about girls. I'm just going to call on one girl. Champ Claiborne. He marched on as though the conversation was at an end, but Ross hung upon his flank. Ross and Champ were neighbors, comrades in all sorts of mischief. He was in doubt whether to halt Abner and pummel him or propose to enlist under his banner. Do you reckon you could? He debated, trotting along by the irresponsive Jilton boy. Run home to your mother, growled the originator of the plan savagely. You ain't old enough to call on girls. Anybody can see that, but I am, and I'm going to call on Champ Claiborne. Didn't, didn't he say they were, they were both basically the same age? Yeah. I'm guessing there's a weak difference between yeah. them or something. Mm. Again, the name acted as a spur on Ross. With your collar and boots all dirty, he jeered. They won't know you're calling. <laughs> the boy in the road stopped short in his dusty tracks. He was an intense creature, and he whitened at the tragic insinuation, longing for the wholesome stay and companionship of his freckle-faced Ross. I put the dirt on a purpose so's to look kind of careless, he half whispered in an agony of doubt. Suppose I'd better go into your house and try to wash it off. Reckon your mother would help me. <laughs> I've got two clean collars, announced the other boy, proudly generous. I'll lend you one. You can put it on while I'm getting ready. I'll tell mother that we're just stepping out to do a little calling on the girls. I'm confused. Uh, I thought the collar was perfectly clean. I guess unnaturally clean. Unnaturally clean. But so the first thing he did is he was kicking up dust, smearing dirt on his shoes. Presumably he intentionally must his collar. Got it. Here was an ally worthy of the cause. 
Abner welcomed him in spite of certain jealous twinges. He reflected with satisfaction that there were two Claiborne girls, and though Alicia was so stiff and prim that no boy would ever think of calling on her, there was still the hope that she might draw Ross's fire and leave him, Abner, to make the numerous remarks he had stored up in his mind from hints and helps to young men in social and business relations to champ alone. <laughs> Mrs. Pryor received them with the easygoing kindness of the mother of one son. <laughs> what does that mean? Two sons makes you ornery. Mom doesn't seem... We're not in the house. Well, actually, I guess we are in her house right now. <laughs> she followed them into the dining room to kiss and feed them with an absent, Howdy, Abner. How's your mother? Abner, big with the importance of their mutual intention, inclined his head stiffly and looked toward Ross for explanation. He trembled a little, but it was with delight as he anticipated the effect of the speech Ross had outlined. But it did not come. I'm not hungry, mother, was the revised addition which the freckle-faced boy offered to the maternal ear. I, we are going over to Mr. Claiborne's on, er, on an errand for Abner's father. The black-eyed boy looked reproach as they clattered up the stairs to Ross's room, where the clean collar was produced and a small stock of ties. You'd wear a necktie, wouldn't you? Ross asked, spreading them upon the bureau top. Yes, but make it fall carelessly over your shirt front, advised the student of hints and helps. I love that so far this is just a story about a kid trying to look like he doesn't care. Yep. And spending a lot of time caring about yep. that. Yep, yep, yep. This is how boys get ready for dates. Either that or they really don't care, in which case the date probably doesn't go very well. Right. Your collar is miles too big for me. Say, I've got a wad of white chewing gum. Would you flat it out and stick it over the collar button? Maybe that would fill up some. You kick my foot if you see me turning my head so as to knock it off. Better button up your vest, cautioned Ross, laboring with the careless fall of his tie. Uh-uh. I want that easy air which presupposes familiarity with society. That's what it says in my book, objected Abner. Sure, Ross returned to his more familiar jeering attitude. Loosen up all your clothes then. Why don't you untie your shoes? Flop a sock down over one of them. That looks easy, all right. <laughs> Abner buttoned his vest. It gives a man lots of confidence to know he's good-looking, he remarked, taking all the room in front of the mirror. Ross, at the washstand, soaking his hair to get the curl out of it, grumbled some unintelligible response. The two boys went down the stairs with tremulous hearts. Ooh. Why, you put on another clean shirt, Rossy, Mrs. Pryor called from her chair. Mother's eyes can see so far. Well, <laughs> don't get into any dirty play and soil it. <laughs> it is really hard to keep this story appropriate for two young boys. <laughs> the boys walked in silence, but it was a pregnant silence. For as the roof of the Claiborne house began to peer over the crest of the hill, Ross plumped down on a stone and announced, I ain't going. Come on, urged the black-eyed boy. It'll be fun, and everybody will respect us more. Champ won't throw rocks at us in recess time after we've called on her. She couldn't. Called, grunted Russ. I couldn't make a call any more than a cow. What did I say? What did I do? I can behave all right when you just go to people's houses, but a call? Abner hesitated. Should he give away his brilliant inside information drawn from the Hints and Helps book and be rivaled in the glory of his manners and bearing? Why should he not pass on alone, perfectly composed, and reap the field of glory unsupported? His knees gave way, and he sat down without intending it. I am entirely Ross. I was as a kid, 
and remain so as an adult. <laughs> Although you seem to have done all right calling on at least one young lady. Yes. <laughs> but, I, you know, definitely just like not not even just like romantically speaking, just that constant sort of, no, I can't talk to them. Then they'll know that I want to talk to them. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason my circle of friends has not grown significantly in the last 38 years. Right. <laughs> Don't tell anybody and I'll put you on exactly what grown-up gentlemen say and do when they go calling on the girls, he began. Fire away, retorted Ross gloomily. Nobody will find out from me. Dead men tell no tales. If I'm fool enough to go, I don't expect to come out of it alive. <laughs> Abner rose, white and shaking, and thrusting three fingers into the buttoning of his vest, extended the other hand like an orator, proceeded to instruct the freckled, perspiring disciple at his feet. Hang your hat on the rack or give it to a servant. Ross nodded intelligently. He could do that. Let your legs be gracefully disposed, one hand on the knee, the other... Abner came to an unhappy pause. I forget what a fella does with the other hand. Might stick it in your pocket loudly or expectorate on the carpet. Indulge in little frivolity. Uh, let a rich stream of conversation flow. Ross mentally dug within himself for sources of rich streams of conversation. He found a dry soil. What you going to talk about, he demanded fretfully. I won't go a step further till I know what I'm going to say when I get there. Abner began to repeat paragraphs from Hints and Helps. It is best to remark, he opened in an unnatural voice, how well you are looking, although fulsome compliments should be avoided. When seated, ask the young lady who her favorite composer is. What's a composer? inquired Ross, with visions of soothing syrup in his mind. I'm no longer Ross. <laughs> What's a composer? inquired Ross, with visions of soothing syrup in his mind. A man that makes up music don't but in that way you put me all out. Composer is. Name yours. Ask her what piece of music she likes best. Name yours. If the lady is musical, here, ask her to play or sing. <laughs> this chanted recitation seemed to have a hypnotic effect on the freckled boy. His big pupils contracted each time Abner came to the repeated... Name yours. Uh-oh. I'm tired already, he grumbled, but some spell made him rise and fare farther. When they had entered the Claiborne Gate, they leaned toward each other like young saplings, weakened at the root and locking branches to keep what shallow foothold on earth remained. You're going in first, asserted Ross, but without conviction. It was his custom to tear up to this house a dozen times a week on his father's old horse or afoot. He was wont to yell for Champ as he approached, and quarrel joyously with her while he performed such errand as he had come upon. But he was gagged and hamstrung now by the hypnotism of Abner's scheme. Walk quietly up the steps, ring the bell, and lay your card on the servant, quoted Abner, who had never heard of a server. <laughs> lay your card on the servant, echoed Ross. Katie Dodge, there's a porch to cross after you go up the steps. Does it say anything about that? It says that the card should be placed on the servant, Abner reiterated doggedly. If Kate dodges, it ain't any business of mine. There are no porches in my book. Just walk across it like anybody. We'll ask for Miss Champ Claiborne. We haven't got any cards, discovered Ross with hope. I have, announced Abner pompously. 
I had some struck off in Chicago. I ordered them by mail. They got my name pillow, but there's a scallop gilt border around it. You can write your name on my card. Got a pencil? He produced a bit of cardboard. Ross fished up a chewed stump of lead pencil, took it in cold, stiff fingers, and disfigured the square with eccentric <laughs> scribblings. I imagine that it's, like, not legible at all. So it's exactly how I write. Perfect. They'll know who it's meant for, he said apologetically, because I'm here. But what's likely to happen after we get rid of the card? I told you about hanging your hat on the rack and disposing your legs. I remember now, sighed Ross. Cut off your legs. Yep. They had been going slower and slower. The angle of inclination toward each other became more and more pronounced. We must stand by each other, whispered Abner. I will if I can stand at all, murmured the other boy huskily. Oh, Lord! They had rounded a big clump of evergreens and found Aunt Missouri Claiborne placidly rocking on the front porch. Directed to mount steps and ring bell to lay cards upon the servant, how should one deal with a rosy-faced, plump lady of uncertain years in a rocking chair? What should the caller lay upon her? A lion in the way could not have been more terrifying. Even retreat was cut off. Aunt Missouri had seen them. Howdy, boys, how are you? She said, rocking peacefully. The two stood before her like detected criminals. Then, to Ross's dismay, Abner sank down on the lowest step of the porch, the westering sun full in his hopeless eyes. He sat on his cap. It was characteristic that the freckled boy remained standing. He would walk up those steps according to plan and agreement, if at all. He accepted no compromise. Folding his straw hat into a battered cone, he watched anxiously for the delivery of the card. He was not sure what Aunt Missouri's attitude might be if it were laid on her. He bent down to his companion. Go ahead, he whispered. Lay the card. <laughs> Abner raised appealing eyes. In a minute, give me time, he pleaded. Mars, Ross, Mars, Ross, head him off, sounded a yell, and Babe, the houseboy, came around the porch in pursuit of two half-grown chickens. Help him, Rossy, prompted Aunt Missouri sharply. You boys can stay to supper and have some of the chicken if you help catch him. Had Ross taken time to think, he might have reflected that gentlemen making formal calls seldom join in a chase after the main dish of the family supper, but the needs of Babe were instant. The lad flung himself sideways, caught one chicken in his hat while Babe fell upon the other in a manner of a football player. Ross handed the poulet to the houseboy, fearing he had done something very much out of character, then pulled him toward the steps. Babe's a servant, he whispered to Abner, who had sat rigid through the entire performance. I helped him with the chickens, and he's got to stand gentle while you lay the card on. Confronted by the act itself, Abner was suddenly aware that he knew not how to begin. He took refuge in dissimulation. <laughs> Hush, he whispered back. Don't you see Mr. Claiborne's come out? He's going to read something to us. Ross plumped down beside him. Never mind the card. Tell him, he urged. Tell him yourself. No, let's cut and run. I, I think the worst is over. When Champ sees us, she'll... Mention of Champ stiffened Ross's spine. If it had been glorious to call upon her, how very terrible she would make it should they attempt calling, fail, and the failure come to her knowledge. Some things were easier to endure than others. He resolved to stay till the call was made. 
For half an hour, the boys sat with drooping heads, and the old gentleman read aloud, presumably to Aunt Missouri and themselves. Finally, their restless eyes discerned the two Claiborne girls walking serene in Sunday trim under the trees at the edge of the lawn. Arms entwined, they were whispering together and giggling a little. A caller, Ross dared not use his voice to shout, nor his legs to run toward them. This feels like exact, like just a very classic, like, this is a 90s sitcom. This is a 90s sitcom. It's also Pride and Prejudice with Children. Yeah. This is great. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, Pride and Prejudice and Children. A sequel to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Why don't you go and talk to the girls, Rossi? Aunt Missouri asked in the kindness of her heart. Don't be noisy. It's Sunday, you know, and don't get to playing anything that'll dirty up your good clothes. Ross pressed his lips hard together. His heart swelled with the rage of the misunderstood. Had the card been in his possession, he would at that instant have laid it on Aunt Missouri without a qualm. What is it? demanded the old gentleman, a bit testily. The girls want to hear you read, father, said Aunt Missouri shrewdly. And she got up and trotted on short, fat ankles to the girls in the arbor. The three returned together. Alicia, casting curious glances at the uncomfortable youths, Champ threatening to burst into giggles with every breath. Abner sat hard on his cap and blushed silently. Ross twisted his hat into a three-cornered wreck. The two girls settled themselves noisily on the upper step. The old man read on and on. The sun sank lower. The hills were red in the west as though a brush fire flamed behind their crests. Abner stole a furtive glance at his companion in misery, and the dolor of Ross's countenance somewhat assuaged his anguish. The freckle-faced boy was thinking of the village over the hill, a certain pleasant white house set back in a green yard, past whose gate the two-plank sidewalk ran. He knew lamps were beginning to wink in the windows of the neighbors about, as though the houses said, Our boys are all at home, but Ross Pryor's out trying to call on the girls and can't get anybody to understand it. Everybody knows everything I'm thinking at all times. Yep. Except the one person that I want to know it. Oh, that he were walking down those two planks, drawing a stick across the pickets, lifting high, happy feet, which could turn in at the gate. He wouldn't care what the lamp said then. He wouldn't even mind if the whole Claiborne family died laughing at him. (laughs) If only some power would raise him up from this paralyzing spot and put him behind the safe barriers of his own home. The old man's voice lapsed into silence. The light was becoming too dim for his reading. Aunt Missouri turned and called over her shoulder into the shadows of the big hall. Go put two extra plates on the supper table. The boys grew red from the tips of their ears and as far as anyone could see under their wilting collars. Abner felt the lump of gum come loose and slid down a cold spine. Had their intentions but been known, this infernal invitation would have been most welcome. It was but to rise up and thunder out, We came to call on the young ladies. They did not rise. They did not thunder out anything. Babe brought a lamp and set it inside the window, and Mr. Claiborne resumed his reading. Champ giggled and said that Alicia made her. Alicia drew her skirts about her, sniffed, and looked virtuous, and said she didn't see anything funny to laugh at. The supper bell rang. The family, evidently taking it for granted that the boys would follow, went in. Alone for the first time, Abner gave up. 
this ain't no use, he complained. We ain't calling on anybody. Why didn't you lay on the card, demanded Ross fiercely. Why didn't you say, we've just dropped in to call on Miss Champ. It's a pleasant evening. We feel we must be going, like you said you would. Then we could have lifted our hats and got away decently. Abner showed no resentment. Oh, if it's so easy, why didn't you do it yourself? He groaned. Somebody's coming, Ross muttered hoarsely. Say it now. Say it quick. The somebody proved to be Aunt Missouri, who advanced only as far as the end of the hall and shouted cheerfully, The idea of a growing boy not coming to meals when the bell rings. I thought you two would be in there ahead of us. Come on! And clinging to their head coverings as though these contained some charm whereby the owners might be rescued, the unhappy callers were herded into the dining room. There were many things on the table that boys like. Both were becoming fairly cheerful when Aunt Missouri checked the biscuit plate with, I treat my neighbor's children just like I'd want children of my own treated. If your mothers let you eat all you want, say so and I don't care. But if either of them is a little bit particular, why I'd stop at six. Six biscuits? Yes, that's what it sounds like. Which is a shame. I like biscuits. I mean, I guess it depends on how big the biscuits are, but damn, that's a lot of biscuits. Yeah. I also just watched the um, the newest episode of Great British Baking Show, mm-hmm. formerly Great British Bake Off, but for some reason they don't call it Bake Off in the States. And uh, it was Biscuit Week, which... Do you want biscuits now? Which in England means something different than True. here. So I'm thinking six biscuits... Yeah, no, I could kill six biscuits easy. <laughs> sure, but like, let's assume it's it's British biscuits. That's that's like the very reasonable accepted number is six. That's, only that's only not overindulging six, at all. Only six cookies before dinner. <laughs> okay. Still reeling from the blow, the boys finally rose from the table and passed out with the family, their hats clutched to their bosoms and clinging together for mutual aid and comfort. During the usual Sunday evening singing, Champ laughed till Aunt Missouri threatened to send her to bed. Abner's card slipped from his hand and dropped face up on the floor. He fell upon it and tore it into infinitesimal pieces. That must have been a love letter, said Aunt Missouri in a pause of the music. You boys are getting most old enough to think about beginning to call on the girls. Her eyes twinkled. Ross Ross growled like a stoned cur. Abner took a sudden dive into hints and helps and came up with, You flatter us, Miss Claiborne, whereat Ross snickered out like a human boy. They he all was. stared at him. He was a human boy. Which is weird because the rest of them are chipmunks. Ooh. That 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 changes changes the story a lot. It sounds so funny to call Aunt Missouri Miss Claiborne, the lad of Freckles explained. Funny, Aunt Missouri reddened. I don't see any particular joke in my having my maiden name. Abner, who instantly guessed at what was in Ross's mind, turned white at the thought of what they had escaped. Suppose he had laid the card and asked for Miss Claiborne. (laughs) What's the matter, champ? inquired Ross in a fairly natural tone. The air he had drawn into his lungs when he laughed at Abner seemed to relieve him from the numbing gentility which had bound his powers since he joined Abner's ranks. Nothing. I laughed because you laughed, said the girl. The singing went forward fitfully. Servants traipsed through the darkened yard, going home for Sunday night. Aunt Missouri went out and held some low-tone parlay with them. Champ yawned with insulting enthusiasm. Champ sounds really annoying. Yeah. Like, basically all she's done is laugh for no particular reason. And yawn. And and now she's yawning, yeah. 
And apparently she throws rocks at the boys during <laughs> recess. Like, sounds like Champ sucks. Yeah. Presently, both boys... Nope. Presently, both girls... <laughs> presently, both girls quietly disappeared. Aunt Missouri never returned to the parlor, evidently thinking that the girls would attend the final amenities with their callers. They were left alone with old Mr. Claiborne. They sat as though bound in their chairs while the old man read in silence for a while. Finally, he closed his book, glanced about him, and observed absently, So, you boys were to spend the night? Then, as he looked at their startled faces, I'm right, am I not? You are to spend the night. Oh, for courage to say, thank you, no, we'll be going now. We just came over to call on Miss Champ. But thought of how this would sound in the face of the facts, the painful realization that they dared not say it because they had not said it locked their lips. Their feet were lead, their tongues stiff and too large for their mouths. Like creatures in a nightmare, they moved stiffly, one might have said creakingly, up the stairs and received each a bedroom candle. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Good night, children, said the absent-minded old man. The two gurgled out some sounds which were intended for words and dodged behind the bedroom door. They've put us to bed. Abner's black eyes flashed fire. His nervous hands clutched at the collar Ross had lent him. That's what I get for coming here with you, Ross Pryor. And tears of humiliation stood in his eyes. In his turn, Ross showed no resentment. What I'm worried about is my mother, he confessed. She's so sharp about finding out things. She wouldn't tease me. She'd just be sorry for me. But she'll think I went home with you. I'd like to see my mother fake a fuss about my calling on the girls, growled Abner, glad to let his rage take a safe direction. Calling on the girls? Have we called on any girls? demanded a clear-throated, honest Ross. Not exactly. Yet, admitted Abner reluctantly, come on, let's go to bed. Mr. Claiborne asked us, and he's the head of the household. It isn't anybody's business what we came for. I'll slip off my shoes and lie down till Babe ties up the dog in the morning, said Ross. Then we can get away before any of the family is up. Oh, that's gonna go well. youth, youth, youth with its rash promises. Worn out with misery, the boys slept heavily. The first sound that either heard in the morning was Babe hammering upon their bedroom door. They crouched guiltily and looked into each other's eyes. Let's pretend we ain't here and he'll go away, breathed Abner. But Babe was made of sterner stuff. He rattled the knob. He turned it. He put in his face with a grin which divided it from ear to ear. Katie says I must call them fool boys to breakfast, he announced. I never named y'all that. Katie, she said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying you're fools. Breakfast? Echoed Ross in a daze. Yes, breakfast, reasserted Babe coming entirely into the room and looking curiously about him. Ain't y'all done been to bed at all? Wrapping his arms about his shoulders and shaking with silent ecstasies of mirth, <laughs> the boys threw themselves upon him and ejected him. Sent up a servant to call us to breakfast, snarled Abner. If they'd only sent their old servant to the door in the first place, all this wouldn't have happened. I'm just that way when I get thrown off track. You know how it was when I tried to repeat those things to you. I, I had to go clear back to the beginning when I got interrupted. Does that mean that you're still hanging around here to begin over and make a call? Asked Ross darkly. I won't go down to breakfast if you are. 
Abner brightened a little as he saw Ross becoming wordy in his rage. I dare you to walk downstairs and say, we just dropped in to call on Miss Champ, he said. I, oh, darn it all, there goes the second bell. We may as well trot down. Don't leave me, Ross, pleaded the Jilton boy. I can't stay here. I can't go down. The tone was hysterical. The boy with freckles took his companion by the arm without another word and marched him down the stairs. We may get a chance yet to call on Champ all by herself out on the porch or in the arbor before she goes to school, he suggested by way of putting some spine into the black-eyed boy. An emphatic bell rang when they were half down the stairs, clutching their hats, they slunk into the dining room. Even Mr. Claiborne seemed to notice something unusual about their bearing as they settled into the chairs assigned to them and asked them kindly if they had slept well. It was plain that Aunt Missouri had been posting him as to her understanding of the intentions of these young men. <laughs> the state of affairs gave an electric hilarity to the atmosphere. Babe traveled from the sideboard to the table, trembling like a pudding. Katie insisted on bringing in the cakes herself and grinned as she whisked her starched blue skirts in and out of the dining room. A dimple even showed itself at the corners of pretty Alicia's prim little mouth. Champ giggled till Ross heard Katie whisper, Now you got one of them snickering spells again. You're gonna bust your dress buttons off in the back if you don't mind. As the spirits of those about them mounted, the hearts of the two youths sank. If it was like this among the Claibornes, what would it be at school and in the world at large when their failure to connect intention with result became village talk? Ross bit fiercely upon an unoffending batter cake and resolved to make a call single-handed before he left the house. They went out of the dining room, their hats as ever pressed to their breasts with no volition of their own, their uncertain young legs carried them to the porch. The Claiborne family and household followed like small boys after a circus procession. When the two turned at bay, yet with nothing between them and liberty but a hypnotism of their own suggestion, they saw the faces of the servants peering over the family shoulders. <laughs> this is a nightmare. Yep. This is like absolutely a nightmare. <laughs> Ross was the boy to have drawn courage from the desperation of their case and made some decent, if not glorious, ending. But at the psychological moment, there came around the corner of the house a young messenger. While all eyes were fastened upon him, this inglorious ambassador bolted forth his message. Your mama say, his eyes were fixed upon Abner, if you don't come home, she's going to come after you and cut you into inch pieces with a rawhide when she get you. As though such a book as hints and helps had never existed, Abner shot from the gate. <laughs> he was but a hobbledehoy, fascinated with the idea of playing a gentleman. But in Ross, there were the makings of a man. For a few half-hearted paces, under the first impulse of horror, he followed his deserting chief. The laughter of the family, the unrestrainable guffaws of the servants, sounding in the rear. But when Champ's high, offensive giggle, topping all the others, insulted his ears, he stopped dead, wheeled, and ran to the porch faster than he had fled from it. White as paper, shaking with inexpressible rage, he caught and kissed the tittering girl violently, <laughs> noiselessly before them all. <laughs> The servants fled, 
They dared not trust their feelings. Even Alicia snickered unobtrusively. Grandfather Claiborne chuckled and Aunt Missouri frankly collapsed into her rocking chair, bubbling with mirth, crying out, Good for you, Ross. Seems you did know how to call on the girls after all. But Ross, paying no attention, walked swiftly toward the gate. He had served his novitiate. He would never be afraid again. With cheerful alacrity, he dodged the stones flung after him with the friendly erratic aim by the girl upon whom yesterday afternoon he had come to make a social call. That is fantastic. The end. (laughs) I loved that. That was great. That was dumb. That was dumb. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, I don't know how young those kids were supposed to be. Clearly, fairly young. Like 13, 14 um, is my guess. But there were, we'll say, sentiments expressed within that story that I think apply to dating deep into your adult years. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, like, ultimately, what changes is you develop uh, just in, instincts on how how to, like, become more comfortable with being uncomfortable some people do you get better at pretending yeah i suppose that's true my first horrifying uncomfortable situation that i remember in in this particular social sense was in like seventh grade there was a girl in my grade who i had had a crush on we 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 were in the same elementary school and i'd had a crush on her since I started understanding what a crush was and the seventh grade dance, the first dance that I had attended, I was minding my own business, just like hanging out with a a couple of friends. I don't even remember who I was there with. And three girls came up towards us. One of them was this girl who I had had a crush on since fourth or fifth grade or whatever. And she asked me if I wanted to dance and I like my jaw dropped And I looked at her and her friend started laughing. (laughs) And then my friends started laughing. And then I started laughing. And then she turned around and walked away. And I felt I was mortified. I didn't like I wanted to stay home from school for the next month. She was probably also mortified. I'm sure she was also mortified. Um. I like that was there was a guilt attached to that that stuck with me for a long time, but also just the embarrassment of I this is exactly how I wanted it to go. And now I don't know what to do or say. Ah, dog that cut cut its own tail. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very much what it was. I think I had one more conversation with her in the next six years before high school graduation. That hurts. Yeah. That hurts. Yep. I think so. I was I was on both sides of this like miscommunication, not knowing what was going on sort of thing. Both probably like freshman year of college. I was I was like I was a I was a late bloomer when it came to uh romantically interacting with anyone. Um but in, in like early on in college I had like there was a girl I I had a crush on, I was like, I'm gonna ask her out, I'm gonna ask her out. Um, and I, I like built up the courage and I went to ask her out and I was like so convoluted about how I asked her out. It didn't come off as me actually asking her out. Um, and the conversation ended and then I went and threw up in the bathroom. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then like li- later that year, maybe the next year at some point, um, I ended up like at, uh, at a restaurant with, with a girl. And it was like halfway through the night before I was like, oh, shit, I'm on a date. (laughs) Yeah. So you never really grow out of being painfully awkward. Hey, listener. So in addition to getting um, spooky stuff from your basement, what's your most embarrassing romantic story? And if you would like us to uh, send out an apology on your behalf, we're happy to do that. By the way, uh, Kristen, if you're listening and are still holding a grudge from seventh grade, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry that, I mean, it's been 
26 years or something since then. But clearly, what would that have been? 13-year-old me uh, didn't know how to handle the high-pressure situations of a dance. A dance. <laughs> Um, but yeah, shoot us, uh, listeners, shoot us a message, an email or social media, something, and, uh, let us know what you thought of that story, but also please send us those pictures of creepy haunted objects and your most horrifying social interaction story that you are willing to share with us. Cause campfire classics, a dating advice podcast. We, we can, we can open <laughs> If we get if we get enough people with uh, these kinds of stories, we can open that segment and it will replace Clown Corner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So shoot those messages to us on uh, social media. 5050 production at gmail.com, wherever you want to send them and include in them this week's secret passcode, which is dog collar. The most important social accessory, your dog collar. And that's the kind of dating advice you'll get here at Campfire Classics. Um, Do you have anything to say before I steer this careening bus just over the cliff? Uh, I'm I'm too young to die. Ah! And this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf.